chaos comes, it's a chance to be initiated. You know, thinking that the United States and its ideas in church have come closest to reflecting reality is like thinking Iceland is the basketball capital of the world. It's actually a psychological disorder. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. When a man becomes who he was made to be by God, every day is adventure. Guys, welcome to the Incense Podcast. How do you feel, Sam, after recording that episode? Uh, it's a mix of feeling very unsettled and humbled and actually kind of joy-filled. Like, it's, it's, it's not what I would expect after talking about genocide and Burma. Today's episode is an interview with Dave Small, who has worked with the Free Burma Rangers for years. I actually don't, I realize it was I like heard, five or six years. No, he mentioned exactly. it. Yeah, yeah. He'll, um, he'll tell you in the episode how long he's been doing it. Sneaking over international borders, uh, doing basic like training of a number of populations that have been under attack for decades. Um, and we're talking. Genocide, we're talking mass evacuations, we're talking operating under fire, and yet Dave loves Jesus and thinks that the gospel is utterly compelling in that exact situation. Yeah, so uh, if you are listening to this episode in the car with your kids, there is a brief moment of language and a brief um, uh, intense visual uh, visualized set of words, a, a couple of things. A couple of hard stories. For for the most part, however, this is a story about the father and how the father and adventure are pursuing Dave in the midst of the jungles of Burma. I think you guys are going to have your socks blown off. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Blaine. Thanks very much. Awesome to be here. I'm really excited about today because it's a, I know a little bit of what's coming and B, we've been going back and forth and you've written an article for the issue that's coming out soon. So for folks that are current with the podcast, this is actually going to be kind of a teaser for some awesome content that's coming in the print version. But, uh, I don't know. I'm just, I just want to start off by like, I'm really excited. Yeah. There's no way to start apart from a chunk of uranium and a hundred miles of jungle. Can you take us there? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, first of all, this is not ever something that I thought I would be doing is like smuggling uranium across an international border. And, uh, you know, after we record this podcast, you may be wanted by the CIA, but that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, so, but uh, yeah, I was, uh, I worked for an organization in Thailand and Burma uh, called the Free Burma Rangers. It's a registered 501, 501c3 in the States called Free the Oppressed. And we go to help people that are being oppressed. And in Burma, there's a long civil war. And so we go and help the people there um, that are stuck in the civil war. It's actually the oldest civil war in the world. But uh, yeah, I was on a mission this year and we came across a mine where 
uh, the UN has kind of a map system and a list of what they think are resource mines in Burma because the United the United Nations aren't actually allowed to go into Burma. Um, so they rely on other organizations to provide them information. And they had a, a point on a map that they thought was a tin mine. And we were walking past it and didn't quite think much of it other than, okay, here's the tin mine. And our team started talking with uh, some of the workers and found out that it's actually not a tin mine. And there were all these um, Chinese businessmen around the mine. And so they started asking about the Chinese people and what was actually going on. And they found out that it's a uranium mine and that they're selling the uranium to China. And so, you know, as you do, you when you find a uranium mine, you think, well, this is cool. I'm going to break in and steal uranium. Um, I think it's just a common uh, response in the human yeah, nature. Yeah, no, definitely. It's not a common and, response, but that's... You watch a lot of Indiana <laughs> Jones growing up? <laughs> yeah, I love Indiana Jones. Okay, it's this like, is connecting some dots. Felt like, yeah, anyways. But <laughs> so then I, I wanted just a small piece of uranium, like the the size of a, a doll, like a, a, a quarter, basically. Something that you could just take back that I could put in my backpack and carry back and give to the UN and say, here, you can test this. This is the GPS coordinates. These are photos of where we got this. This is what's actually happening. This is not a tin mine. This is a uranium mine. And so I sent the team. Two of my guys went into the mine. They um, walked about an hour deep into this mine shaft. And then they brought me back uh, a big chunk of uranium about the size of my head that weighed about 10 or 12 kilograms. And I had a hundred miles to walk through the jungle. This was in Burma and then crossing the border into Thailand. And um, I had my own gear plus team gear plus food. And then suddenly they gave me a chunk of uranium and uranium is one of the like heaviest matters or materials elements that there is. Um, so this was quite the, the struggle. And <laughs> oh my when, when I got back to Thailand, I was so like uranium itself is just a rock. It's not, there's nothing like amazing about it um, until it's enriched. And then when I was back at my office, I was Googling, how do you enrich uranium? Which then my buddy was like, I don't know if you should Google things like that. Cause <laughs> that's how you end up on, on like a watch list. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, so the uranium I have is not in, or had was not enriched. It's just a big rock. And I, um, don't think I have any superpowers. I'm not like radioactive or anything like that, but then ended up giving this over to the United Nations and presenting them the data that we had from it. And um, the reason we do this is not just to be like hardcore heroes, but um, or to have a cool story to tell at the bar or um, on a Sunday morning at church when I'm preaching and pastors don't normally talk about uranium. But um it's it's because we want to shine a light on what's happening in Burma. And one of the missions of the Free Burma Rangers is to put the light on what is actually happening there and to um, tell the truth about um, the situation and the fact that what news comes out of Burma is actually not very true. And mm -hmm. um, and so we want to try to be uh, an advocate for the truth. And um, it's something that is not super common these days, it seems. The truth is very relevant to whatever you want it to be. Okay. That's so good. And there's all of these questions popping up, some of which are a little bit trivial and I want to get those out of the way first. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Uranium. Is that not like you don't, if someone said here, carry this uranium in your backpack, I'd be like, I don't totally know how that works, but I think 
I'm going to get cancer if I touch that. Also, second question with your Googling, how do you enrich uranium? Um, well, I think it has something. I actually stopped Googling because, you know, I need to just be a little careful with you that kind of stuff. You want to be able to like cross borders and things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, if I make a connection through good old Chicago, then um, I don't want, you know, they call me into this little room and put on their rubber gloves and that, check anyways. all your cavities. Yep. It, it has something to do with lasers and like you need some sort of lasers and it's only small percentages of the actual uranium that can be enriched. And so I don't, okay. I'm not an expert. No, I mean, was, I'm just glad lasers are involved somehow. No. So, yeah, and I don't have any lasers, but there are people who become concerned about the truth who regulate their family's Facebook feeds and then evidently there's a way to become concerned about the truth in a way that has you deep in the jungle in Burma. How did you become someone? Where did this attachment to or pull towards the truth and revealing the truth grow in you? How did that, I forgot the start of that question, but how did you become someone who was that fixated on telling the truth such that you end up deep in the jungle in another country? I think the answer to that is love, um, which may sound a bit weird, but um, in the beginning of my time working with the Free Burma Rangers, it was more about the adventure. It was more about, oh, I get to walk 100 miles through the jungle, and for the next six weeks, I'm going to be just lost on my own in the jungle with all of these guys, these Burmese ethnic guys, and um, we're going to do cool things. And it was all about the adventure. But the more, like I've been doing it now for, I'm going into my sixth year working with these guys and um, have built relationships with the Burmese guys that we work with. And I totally love them. And when you love someone and someone is not telling the truth about their situation or not telling the truth about them, you want to stand up for the truth then. And so really it was an organic process of first loving the guys and loving the teams and loving our, our guys that we work with. And then out of that comes this desire to want to tell the truth and want to want people outside to know what is actually happening in their country because the media and, and what little information is getting sent out of Burma is very heavily regulated by the government and the military that controls the, the power. Mm. Okay. So two questions. First, um, <laughs> this almost back to Blaine's thing of there are other ways to tell the truth. There are other ways to find adventures. Like a lot of guys mm. can find adventures in the country they live, in the town that they live, in the skateboarding. I mean, really, um, <laughs> I, you you work with the Canadian Army, is that correct? So yeah, so I'm in the reserves in the Canadian Army. Okay, so what about your life? Like you, I think adventure is still a jump, but you had gotten to a place where you were at least not physically worried about being capable of doing this, these hundred miles per se. Um, like just how did you make the jump? Where, where were you where you were like, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm going to be okay doing this. It's still an adventure, but I got at least close enough that adventure now looked like flying to Thailand and then smuggling yourself into Burma. Yeah, I mean, I'm in my head, I'm trying to think how far back I should take you on this uh, journey, like back to Genesis or back to like birth or what. 
Um, but I guess the, sh the short answer is my, my family worked in Thailand when I was a kid. So I went to international school in Chiang Mai um, when I was in grades nine and 10. And yeah, my parents were school teachers and wanted an adventure for the family. And so they took a leave of absence from their teaching jobs in Canada and took jobs teaching at Chiang Mai International School. And I, we all went. And so myself and I have two brothers. And um, yeah, so we lived for two years in Chiang Mai, which is where at the point I met David Eubank, who is the founder of Free Burma Rangers. And um, when I was 15 years old, he asked if I would um, help record some stories on human rights. And they needed a children's like voice to record on these podcast or these series that they were doing. They were doing on cassette players that you could like crank up and play. Um, and then they were going to produce these stories of human rights and then bring them into the refugee camps on the Thai Burma border and give them out to people so that they can hear stories about human rights. And so I said, yeah, sure. I'll record these pod, these like, whatever you call want to call them like tapes cassettes with them and then um after they were all produced he said hey do you want to come into the refugee camp and hand them out with us and i was 15 years old at the time and thought okay and my mom for some reason said yeah go ahead and um went into a refugee camp and we we first walked into the camp and they showed us around and they said okay if the burma army is going to come into the camp and burn it down they're going to use this trail over here and um this this tree line right here is where we execute spies and um, as a 15 year old, I was just terrified the whole time. I was like, what have I gotten myself into? And um, nothing happened. Every time a dog would bark, I would like jump up and think like, oh my gosh, the Burma army is coming. But um, no, everything was fine. But it was a thing that never left me. And then fast forward until my adult years. And um, I kind of went through this phase where I stopped being comfortable with living in North America, where I was just like, I am not manly i live in a city i work in an office i like don't do manly things and i have a friend who runs a roofing business who i said can i come and work for you for free for a summer just because like i want to learn how to do manly things which maybe it sounds like lame but so i did that and it started me on this quest of trying to do things that i felt would um initiate me and uh bring me more into like my masculine identity and so, and then it led to joining the army where I wanted to learn something. I wanted to do something that would take me out of my comfort zone. And the army is good at doing that. And I also joined as an officer. And so I wanted to learn more about leadership and how I can apply leadership. And I'm really thankful for that because as I went back to Thailand five years ago, those skills have served me really well over there. And I'm not there in any capacity with the Canadian army or the Canadian government, but I, um, I use a lot of the skills I've learned as I'm maneuvering in war zones. And um, it's been pretty incredible. You said you wanted to do a series of activities, uh, practices that would initiate you. And you mentioned roofing and then ultimately the Canadian army. This is sort of a side <laughs> point. The arc there. What were some of the other things that you did or wanted to try as a part of that initiation? Um, I mean, camping was a big one, just like getting out into the bush. And I don't know who said it a few weeks ago on your podcast. And it really just spoke to my heart that you said you wanted to create a rhythm of camping in your life or with your family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice line. Um, but yeah, that really spoke to me because it was like, that was a big part of it for me was like, okay, I'm going to go out and camp on my own and I'm going to light fires and I'm going to cook my meals and I'm going to sleep in the tent and I'm not going to worry about 
bears and wolves and, you know, whatever's out in the Canadian wilderness here. Um, and so that was a big one was just also like learning how to camp. And then um, even fishing was a little one that I grew up in a beautiful fishing area in Northwestern Ontario. And I didn't know how to fish. I didn't know how to like hook a minnow onto the, the hook. And I didn't know how to like take a hook out of the fish's mouth. And these were just like little things, even backing up a trailer, like backing the boat up into the water. I couldn't do it very well. And so totally. they, these were like little things that I was intentional about trying to learn or try to like be fathered in or try to um, just experience that I can have more confidence in my masculine identity. Oh, it's so good. Cause this is speaking the part of me that knows you don't just appear at some point in your life as the guy who can go and handle walking into the, the Burma jungle and training with these guys. There's all of these steps that may seem really small at the time, but I remember being like 12 and trying to help dad back up the trailer and how it like wonky it feels and you want a sense of mastery. And it's like, yeah, there's like, there's dignity in that. There's dignity in pursuing all those small things as they increase. I just, yeah, I love that. Yeah. There are things that I ever find that I get drawn to, like, you know, the show on Netflix that's called, uh, mm, shoot the chef's table. Yeah. Yes. Like what? I mean, I'm not a good cook, but watching these chefs who have mastery over their domain, it's like, wow, that's cool. Or watching like a conductor of an orchestra who is like super passionate of leading this group and has mastery over that. I remember being like 13 and I was in Berlin visiting my aunt and she took me to the Berlin Symphony Orchestra. And um, just I remember just being like amazed at this conductor who was flailing his arms around but had like mastery over something and it's like learning all these little skills that are going to serve me and the way that god has led me into a, a job and a vocation where i'm putting all of these things into practice and um, have the ability to look back and say wow this served a purpose i didn't know at the time why it was important for me to know how to fish but then one day I find myself in the jungle and we need to eat fish to survive. Like we need to eat insects and bugs and to have the skill set to cook over a fire and sleep in a hammock and not really be afraid about it or totally out of my comfort zone. Mm. Um, it serves me so well. That's uh, awesome. Okay. So we do need to provide some context for people that are, are listening and going, okay, I know I certainly know these country names. I know about the conflict. Maybe I've heard uh, of some things in the news or in a Facebook feed. Maybe people are familiar with like o Obama was making a trip there and there was this big push for him saying the name of the, forgive me for pronouncing it, like the Rohingya people. Yeah, Words like genocide get thrown around. The Golden Triangle is there. The border between Laos, Thailand, and Burma, Myanmar. The, the names yep. get confusing for some people. So if you could briefly be like, what is, even even in the, the doorway of what you're trying to do, who's the people group and, and what's the goal and what's the context? If you could just flash that out yeah, for some folks. Great and hugely complicated question. Yeah, um, of course. Like Burma, Burma history, Burma 101 is, um, is a complicated thing, but the Brits had Burma as a colony and after the war, the Brits were decolonizing and gave control over to the largest ethnic group, which were called the Burmans. 
And so the Burmans then formed government and formed a military. And the Burmans have a long history of like tribal warfare against another ethnic group called the Karen. Um, and in Burma, there's like over 180 recognized ethnic groups, each with their own language, their own culture, their own like way of doing things, their own religions. And so it's a very, very diverse um, culture. And Burma is divided up into 13 major states that are named after the largest ethnic groups. So Karen state is the home to the Karen, Karen people. Kareni is the home to the Kareni. Kachin is home to the Kachin. And so, and then within the Kachin, there's going to be like dozens of different tribes and ethnic groups within them. Um, and so after the, the Brits decolonized, the Burmans basically declared war on the Karen, their kind of long-standing enemy. And because now they had the backing of the military because they controlled it, um, the general said, we want to have one country, one language, one religion. So if you want to learn Karen in your language, in your schools, then we're going to come in and we're going to burn down the school. And if you want to uh, practice Christianity, then we're going to come in and burn your church down because we want you to be Buddhist and we want you to speak Burmese. And so all of these different ethnic groups were just kind of going to war with the Burma army and being oppressed by the Burma army where they wanted to be able to farm. They wanted to be able to have schools in their own languages. They wanted to be able to practice whatever religion they want. And eventually they formed political parties and eventually formed their own militaries and started to fight back. So all of these states now have their own militaries and they all are at war with the Burma army. And then you hear about a few years ago, the Rohingya. So the Rohingya had um, about 800,000 people fled out of Burma into neighboring Bangladesh. And the Rohingya are actually not a recognized ethnic group. And um, yeah, their situation was kind of where I got thrown off the deep end into uh, the middle of that conflict. And um, yeah, just the stories and the things that, I experienced and the ways that we saw God moving with the Rohingya and in these refugee camps was really incredible. But um, yeah, there's still Rohingya people that are trapped in Burma and they're Muslims, which is a, a, an ethnic group that the Burma government is really against and they're really trying to fight. And basically that's what the UN has called genocide last year is this war against the Rohingya people. Asterisk point, the name, Burma, Myanmar, what's going on there? Okay, so the best way I can explain this is if I talk about Nike shoes. And so back in the 90s, Nike was under a lot of pressure from people like that they were building their shoes in sweatshops. And everyone is very familiar with the Nike swoosh. And so Nike still made their shoes, but they stopped branding their shoe with the Nike swoosh. They instead made Tiger Woods brand and Air Jordan brand. And they used all these different brands for the exact same shoe to start to change people's image of what is actually going on with their shoe. Um, that being said, Burma is kind of in the same boat where everyone who was thinking about Burma was thinking about this big war that was happening there. And so the government said, oh, okay, when people talk about Yangon and Burma, they're gonna think about this war. So we're gonna move the capital from Yangon to Nipida and we're going to rename the country Myanmar. And so then people like me and you in the West who hear this name Myanmar and Burma, and we get kind of confused about what is this going on here? And I don't really know much about this place. And um, it's, a, it's a branding thing, really. 
Oh, good. So in your pursuit of truth, there is just uh, some rebranding for uh, PR images. Yeah. And they're really good at it. Like they are masters at spinning that whole, mm. like what they want to say is we, when they were killing the Rohingya people, they were using Facebook to promote hate crimes and hate speech towards the Rohingya people. And the majority of people that you would have polled in central Burma would have been in favor of getting rid of the Rohingya and the, what the army was doing because of the way that they influenced um, the people there. And I could go on a long rant about Facebook, but I don't want, you know, I don't want to cause problems. I mean, that snippet alone, we should just take as a soundbite and start throwing it around to get people to get off of the brainwashing social media. Facebook had two Burmese speaking employees. And so if you were to flag something on Facebook that was like hateful or abusive or whatever, it would take them over a year before it was able to have somebody review it because they only had two Burmese speaking employees. And Facebook is totally free for anyone who owns a cell phone in Burma. Mm-hmm. So the word Facebook and the, and the word internet are like synonymous inside Burma because everybody has access to Facebook because it's totally free. You don't need a data plan. All you need is a SIM card and a phone and you get free access to Facebook. Crazy. Yeah. Okay. So now bring us down another 10,000 feet to who are you working with uh, out of all of these people groups? Or is it a kind of anybody um, with the, the Free Burma Rangers? And what is, what's your goal here? Because there's the, the part of me that loves Star Wars that goes like, save the rebellion, save the dream. <laughs> like, are you equipping people to f- actively fight the Burmese army? Or are you essentially training medics and people to help evacuate folks? Like, what, And maybe you can't tell us everything, but... Help, help paint that picture a little bit more. What's the, what's the goal and who are you working with? Well, now we're now that we're smuggling uranium, we're going to start giving nuclear bombs to all of the ethnic groups. Oh, perfect. We're going to ramp it up a notch. Yeah. No, um, this, is good. this is a good plan. <laughs> um, no, so what we do is it, it started basically 25 years ago with my boss, David Eubank, who is a former U.S. Army Ranger, grew up as a missionary kid in, uh, in Chiang Mai in Thailand. Um, and then after he graduated high school, he went to Fuller Seminary and he joined the U.S. Army, became an Army Ranger. And then he got out of the Army and went back to, to Burma or back to Thailand. And he heard about this war in Burma and he said, we can ha- I can help people there. And so he basically filled a humongous backpack of medicine, walked through the jungle until he found the front line and treated as many people as he could and helped however he could. And then walked back to Thailand, refilled his backpack with medicine and then walked back into the jungle. And he kept doing this. And one day a a guy stepped out of the jungle and said, hey, a Burmese guy and said, hey, I'm a medic. I can help you. Will you teach me? And so he started to train him. And that kind of developed what our, our model is now is to train local people in Burma who can go and help their own people. So rather than like me going and handing out food and water and rice and medicine, we train locals and give them a skill set where they can then go on a mission and do those own things for their own people. So we will train anyone. If the Burma army wants to send us a soldier, we will train them at our training camp, but we will always tell the truth about what they're doing and we'll tell them what what they're doing is wrong and um, we'll share the gospel with them. And um, so we've never had a Burma army soldier sent to us by the Burma army. We've had Burma army soldiers run away from the Burma army because there's a lot of child soldiers and people forced into being soldiers in Burma. And, um, but we primarily work with the major ethnic groups and they send us people every year to our training camp in the jungle in Burma. 
And there we train them uh, for about four months. And so they do three months of what we call like basic training. There they learn 60 different skill sets. And then we send them on a one month training mission where we go with them and all the teachers go with them and, and like kind of oversee them running a mission, helping people. And, um, and the mission of the Free Burma Rangers is basically two things. One is to help the people and the other is to get the news out. And so helping the people might look like um, someone's getting shot at and we are going to help them get away. And um, we're going to stand with the villagers and help people flee until everybody is out of the village. So that could be considered helping the people. Or in ceasefire areas, it could look like um, there's a malaria outbreak and we're going to walk through the jungle until we get to these villages and we're going to treat people with malaria medicine. Um, it may also be um, doing a village program or a children's program where we run these humongous children's programs and help the kids forget for a day that they're in a war zone and give mom a break and uh, give the teachers a break. And we support schools and we support churches and we support um, like infrastructure building in some of the, the villages there. Um, so that's kind of all under the umbrella of helping the people. And then getting the news out is like telling the truth about what's going on in there and writing reports about how our missions go and um, giving updates through social media, through um, our, our like network of people who follow us uh, through our newsletters and things like that, through our day of prayer, are, are all about organizing um, and getting the news out, about telling the truth about what's actually happening there. And then we've actually from there been invited to other countries. So we've done missions in the Sudan. Um, and most recently we've been in Iraq and Kurdistan and Syria for about the last five years, helping people who are being killed and attacked by ISIS. Wow. You earlier in this conversation said like, um, basically that you couldn't anticipate the ways that these would, this sort of process of this initiation would build both into your like job and, uh, vocation. In terms of what you've just been describing, I'm curious about how you frame kind of those two things. Like, feels like I have a handle on your, a little bit on your job in terms of what you were just saying. Like, okay, great. Um, helping in this like broad but hands on, immediate way. How do you understand your vocation in relationship with? these international epic missions? I mean, personally, I think my vocation is in disciple making, um, which maybe it sounds strange, but, you know, as a, as a foreigner, as a white guy going on into the jungle, into a mission, I'm seen as a teacher and a leader, a team leader. And, um, and we go and the team runs everything. The team runs the medical clinics. We run a hospital there. They treat all the patients. We, they do all of the cool stuff. The team does it. And we, and as foreigners, oversee and guide them, give them feedback. But more so, my job, I feel like more and more is, you know, we walk for six weeks at a time and um, we're walking hundreds of miles each month and we spend many, many nights just like, circled up around a campfire in the jungle, cooking our food together. And, you know, you string up your hammock between a couple bamboo trees and you make camp for the night. And there's maybe 20 of us on the team that are doing these missions. And each night I get the opportunity to share um, through translators what's on my heart, what God is doing in my life, who God has been in my life. And our teams are not all 
Christians. Some of them are Buddhists. Some of them are animists. Some of them are atheists. A lot of them are Catholics. Some of them are Christians. So there's like a whole mix in there. And uh, most of them are young men, like in their 20s. And to get a chance to just like build into their lives and to speak into their lives is what excites me the most out of all of the adventure and all of the mission. Um, and it also feels like the bet the right fit for me because it's not about me as a foreigner or a white guy coming and like saving the day and helping handing out food and, and water. And, um, it's about them being equipped to help their own people and to lead their own people. And so by speaking into their lives and their character, I think it le- it, it's, it's part of my job and the, the part of my job I like the best. Okay. Everything you've just described sounds truly epic. Like this sort of special forces medics trying to bring truth. You have this internal mission of making disciples that's going on. Um, in the West, I can feel myself like actively dissociating from the images that I have seen and know like genocide people, like war against ethnic groups, um, burning down buildings, people being fired at. Like I hear those words and I like, I'll go there for a second and then I kind of withdraw and I'm like, okay, back to the jungle and the camping scenes. Um, what you've described, I think looks really good in a montage that we in the West would engage for probably five minutes, but there on the ground for weeks at a time, months at a time, um, they're, are bound to be probably a, a ton of moments where you're like, what the hell is going on? What am I doing here? What, like, what, what do you do those moments happen? Or is that just me? Yeah. And what do you do with, what do you do with those? How do you, how is it that you in the jungle continue to offer, continue to, to go back? Yeah. I'm, I, I mean, my, my first memory is going to the refugee camp when the Rohingya first started fleeing out of uh, Burma a couple of years ago. And they started fleeing on August 25th. And at the beginning, it was about 600,000 in the immediate like exodus out of Burma into Bangladesh. And Bangladesh is already like a very poor and desperate country. And then to suddenly add 600,000 people there, um, it was total chaos. And I was there two weeks later after this, these, all these people arrived and there was just a mass of humanity. Like I had never seen before. They had one toilet for every 50,000 people. Um, every person had diarrhea and nobody was waiting in line to use these toilets. If you could get food, then they were cooking it on an open fire. So all 600,000 people here needed to get firewood which meant that the landscapes over the last two years had been totally decimated. Like normally when I go on a mission, I'll hang a hammock somewhere. There's no trees left anywhere within the a hundred miles of these camps to hang trees because it's totally been just destroyed. Um, and then you want to hear like stories. And so you go and you ask your translator, say like, can you find someone who has a story or that I can interview to tell their story? And he just reaches out and grabs whoever happens to be walking by and says, tell your story. And they tell you like the most horrendous story of what happened to them. And then when they're done, he just walks, grabs whoever else is walking by and says, tell your story. And all of these people have um, a, a humongous burden and a huge story of, of just um, some of the worst possible things you can imagine. And um, I remember feeling overwhelmed, like what I cannot, I am one guy, we are a small, tiny organization. Like we can't feed these people. We can't give food to 600,000 people. So what do we do? And 
Um, and I remember sitting one day listening to these men tell me their stories, like stories of um, their children being abducted in the middle of the night from the refugee camp and having their organs harvested to sell on the black market. Like, and I'm there trying to tell them like, oh, we should like forgive and love each other. And, and it's like, wow, this suddenly just became real. And I don't know how you forgive when someone's done that. And I don't know how you love each other. And I, I was like really just struggling with all these thoughts. And as I was getting ready to leave after the long day, I was exhausted from hearing their stories, just emotionally exhausted. And one of the guys pulled me aside and grabbed my hand. And through the translator, he said, brother, thank you for listening. And I said, oh, no problem. And he said, no, we have been sitting here for three, four weeks and no one has asked us our story. No one has asked us what happened. And for us to just tell our story, it helps so much to, to work through the feelings that we have inside of us. And it was kind of this glimpse of just being there and just sitting with them, just listening to their story, holding their hand, crying with them, um, telling them you know what? You're not forgotten about. The world hasn't forgotten about you. America hasn't forgotten about you. God hasn't forgotten about you. Um, it helps them. And we can't, I cannot um, give them food. I can't give them water. I can't do anything that is going to be like a tangible thing, but I can pray with them and even just cook a meal with them or sit with them while they prepare a meal and, um, and cry with them when they talk about their loss of family members and their loss of lands and their loss of freedom. Um, and just to give someone hope, give someone the gospel is what is really amazing. And, um, and what is eternal in all that? Wow. Oh my gosh. Pain, the kind of pain that you're describing is, you know, for anyone, one of the great challenges in a life with God. What about the gospel is compelling to you in this context? And then I just love to hear like what in your life with God has provided categories for you or just like allowed you to walk through these scenes as someone who still wants to make disciples of Jesus. Chuck Bolton was interviewed on Morgan's podcast a few weeks back and he said something like, I rescue because I was rescued. And to me, that spoke so strongly because Jesus rescued me and um, Jesus has set me free. He's put joy in my heart, even in the midst of like depression, even in the midst of sorrow and um, grief and like hearing stories of loss and having uh, knowing people who step on landmines in the jungle and are blown up and like death everywhere. But there's still joy that comes from this relationship with Jesus. And um, and so I am like honored to rescue because I've been rescued. And I thought Chuck put it so perfectly in that, in that sentence, but, um, yeah. And then the other thing that really comes to mind is like Dan Allender said that, um, when you enter someone else's story, you should take off your shoes because it's holy ground. And I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. I don't know like what I'm doing out there most of the time, I'm kind of like bumbling my way through it and I'm bumbling my way through my faith and I'm bumbling my way through like all of life, but I'm trying my best. And when I enter into someone else's story, I'm reminded of that and that I take off my shoes and really just um, listen and just be there and be a part of their story. And um, 
I can't offer anything. I can't fix them. I can't whatever, make it right. I can't stop the Burma army, but I can love them. And then when I'm out there, something that's been so incredible is just receiving love. And um, I always pray when I'm on a mission, Jesus, help me to love our team well. But then recently that prayer has changed is to help me to love and be loved by the team and to then allow myself to receive love from them. And it could be something like four in the morning in your hammock, it's freezing cold and they drape, a, someone comes and drapes a blanket over you and kind of tucks it in or they light a little fire beside your hammock to keep you warm uh, in the nighttime and um, always looking over their shoulder and making sure you're okay, asking to help you, giving you water, picking you fruit or um, cooking you a squirrel or a monkey or something like that to make sure you have food. And um, it's like strange little things, but it's just receiving love has been amazing. And each time I know, and I get this feeling of this is the father's love. This is the father's um, just saying, I'm with you. I'm here. I love you. I'm walking this journey with you. And um, yeah, my, my greatest times of like, spiritual awakening and just feeling most connected is when I'm deep in the jungle and you wake up and you, I, I make my morning coffee in my AeroPress, which is like a, a go-to tool in my toolkit. Um, and, but you sit and like, you're above the clouds at, you know, a thousand meters or 2000 meters and it's a peaceful morning and you're in a place that no foreigner has been maybe ever. And, um, you're with a group of people who you don't speak the same language with and you learn to communicate with them without language, but with, you know, gestures and, and there's so much more and just a look in your eye and, um, and you kind of soak all this in for a minute and you just can't help but feel the love of the father and the beauty of creation and the beauty of what God has created in the midst of a war zone. And it, it's an incredible experience and it's just so peaceful and it, it's so peaceful in the middle of a war zone, which is a bit ironic. Hmm. So this might be an unfair question. I don't even know that I want to hear the answer. Um, knowing what you have experienced, what would you say would be more difficult for a, a life for you on one hand, never going back and just doing the Western comfort world, because that is really, really heavy what you have to carry and interact with. So that's one choice. The other is continuing to go and to hear the stories and to be in a war zone and mm be potentially risking your life. Which of those life options would be more difficult for you to live? I think um, right now, I definitely feel it would be the North American life. Um, being home in, in Canada right now and has been really hard. I notice things that I've never noticed before, like how soft everything is. Every chair, every carpet, every mattress is just like so soft. Um, and I noticed these things after sleeping in a hammock or on a, like a bamboo floor for the last year. And, um, so I find that would be hard, but I think the bigger thing is that I've learned that community is so important and like having a tribe of people that you are connected with is vital. Um, and 
my my tribe, my community is over there right now. Like the people that work for Free Burma Rangers come from all over the world. The majority of them are Americans. And um, we have an awesome community. We have like our own house church and we do life together. And we're all kind of the same age and have the same um, like goals and things that we love to do. But on the mission, you're a part of this tribe. You're a part. They have like welcomed you and they will give their life for you. And Sebastian Junger calls um, your community, the people that you would feed and fight for in your life. And slowly here in North America, I'm building more of a community of people that I would feed and fight for and that they would feed and fight for me. And when you're a part of that, then it doesn't matter um, necessarily the geographical location, because I think it's all about doing life with other people. And it's like doing something that's bigger than yourself, that is for your community, that is for um, uh, whether your community is your church or your few or your people in your life that are like um, just your your main go to friends, um, but that you're serving that community. And that could be in the jungle of Burma and that community can be just a tribe of Burmese people that you're on a mission with. Or it can be in North America where, um, yeah, you know, in your mind, these are the, these are my people. And um, that really stuck out to me because the Rohingya people would always tell me, I want to fight for my people. I want to help my people. I want to um, be able to serve my people. And I didn't know who are my people. Like, I kind of thought like, yeah, okay, they get it because they're being attacked. They're, they know that their people are the Rohingya and that's who they're talking about there. And they want to learn a skill for their people. And it made me really think about this. Who are my people? And who are the people that I would die for? Who are the people that I love and that I want to feed and fight for? And um, and when I answer that question right now, my heart goes to Burma. My heart goes to the refugee camps and um, and these families and and people that have totally adopted me into their lives and that I've adopted them into my lives. And so long answer, but I would choose Burma. <laughs>